Today we're going to be continuing in our Scandal of Grace series, and even though you are looking a bit more awake, I just want to give you a little activity to, to kind of wake you up a little bit and stir your thoughts and uh, get your minds whirring. So what I want you to do in a second is to turn to a person near to you, maybe someone you don't know, maybe someone uh, you've just met in the break uh, during your chin wag, and uh, I want you to have a chat with them, and I want you to tell the person next to you what the worst thing you've ever done is. So you've got a few minutes. Give you a few minutes. Go for it. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I enjoyed seeing some of the reactions on people's faces as I said that. That was good. I enjoyed that. Well, what about if the person next to you had turned to you and said, hey, well, you know, I'm not really sure what the worst thing I've ever done is. I mean, I mean, it's a, it kind of is a toss-up between a few. It, it might have been the time that I, um, I slept with my friend's wife. Or the time to cover it up, I killed him. Or maybe it's just generally how I've been as a parent. You know, I didn't really set the best example for my kids. And, and actually my son uh, raped his sister. And then my other son killed that son to get revenge. Or maybe it could be the time that in my pride and my arrogance, I ended up kind of taking some actions which led to the death of uh, 70,000 of the people that I lead. What would you be thinking if the person next to you said that? I can imagine you'd have all sorts of thoughts going through your head, probably shuffling a little bit along the row. I can tell you one thought you would definitely not be having, and that's, I'm going to name my child after that person. <laughs> There's no way you're having that thought, and yet, that is exactly what God did. We read in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. David. Jesus Christ, God on earth, known both then and now and for eternity as what? The son of David. Why? Why would you want your child associated with a murderer, an adulterer, a deceiver for eternity? Why? Why? Well, as we've seen in previous weeks, I'm going to see today, I'm going to see for the rest of this series on the Scandal of Grace, is because God specializes in telling the world that he only uses broken and imperfect and messed up people for his glory. And so David, as we're going to see today, is a trophy, something that God lifts up as a sign of his grace. A sign to us and to the world that God specializes in using broken and sinful and messed up people. So is that it then? Is that kind of sermon done now? We've kind of reached the conclusion. Basically, all we need to know from today and the whole of this series is just be broken, messed up and sinful. Keep going on that way. God will get the glory. You'll get to heaven. Jobs are good. In. Is that the conclusion? By no means. No. So then what is our response? Well, I think for me, of all the people in Scripture, David was one of the best examples of seeing what is our response to God. And why did God choose David? I mean, why did he choose David 
over Saul. When you know the story of David, just before David is made king, Saul, King Saul, is rejected by God. So why did God reject Saul but choose David and make a covenant with him? Why did David get chosen over seven of his brothers? I mean, there's a, there's a lineup of seven of his brothers where Samuel's told, choose the next king of, Eng- uh, of England. No, <laughs> remix, Bible remix, king of Israel. And Samuel's going along the line saying, God, is this your one? Is this your one? And on each one, God says no. It's not that David was picked last. It's not like in school, you know, when it gets to the last person, it's like, no, you have him. No, no, you have him. No, David didn't even get invited to the match. Yet God said, he's the one I want to be my king. Why? Why? Well, it tells us in the Bible, God says to Samuel, whilst man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. David is described as a man after God's own heart. So I don't know about you, but I want to know what was it about David's heart? that attracted the attention, attracted the favour of God. And that's what we're going to see today. And it's going to be from the darkest and most uh, disgusting part of David's life, but also the one which shows us the most about grace. So we're going to be going through uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. And we're going to see three things. First of all, the power of sin Secondly, the road to repentance. And thirdly, the scandal of grace. So 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, it's a very, I mean, it's an incredible story. Very kind of intricate, amazing detail in there. I'd encourage you to go away and study it. I've loved studying this story. So much it could teach us. I'm just going to paraphrase, but if you've got a Bible with you, you can follow along to check that everything I'm saying is legit. Um, And uh, as we go, just take in a little bit of how you would feel in the situation which David was in. So the story starts with David walking on the roof of his palace. And he's wandered around in the afternoon when he spots a beautiful woman bathing on the roof of a house. And in that moment, he turns to one of his servants and says, hey, go find out who that is for me. So his servant comes back and he says, "Uh, King David, that's actually Bathsheba, uh, the the wife of Uriah. And so David being, you know, the the mighty and godly king of the people of God says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Bathsheba, the wife of uh, Uriah. um, Oh, yeah, I mean, Uriah, he was one of the men who protected me in the wilderness. I owe my life to him. There's no way I'm going near his wife. No. David says, bring her to me. So Bathsheba was brought to the palace. David has sex with her and sends her home. Then weeks passed and more weeks passed. And Bathsheba notices something a bit different. She sends a message to the palace saying, tell David and David only, I'm pregnant. And David freaks out. And he is the king of the people of God. He can't be found out to have had adultery with a woman. And so in his, in his state of, of a frenzied uh, worry and anxiety, he hatches a plan. And so he sends off for Uriah, who's on the front lines, risking his life to defend David and his kingdom. Sends him back, bring him back, bring him back. So Uriah comes back to the palace 
And David starts schmoozing with them a little bit and says, hey, you know, you've, you've worked really hard. You've been fighting really hard. Why don't you just have a few days off? Go back, see your wife, hang out with her, you know, have a good time. You've earned it. You've earned it. And so he goes off to bed and wakes up the next morning and thinks, okay, all good, all sorted, brushed under the carpet. And he walks downstairs in the palace. And there's Uriah sleeping on the floor. And he says, uh, Uriah, wh- um, why didn't you go home last night? And Uriah says, how can I sleep at home with my wife in the comfort of my own bed when my brothers are risking their lives on the front line? His honor's too great, and it just shows the contrast between him and David. So David's got to go even deeper and even darker. He says, hey, hey, well, fair enough. Well, how about you come for a meal back at the palace tonight? So that night, Uriah comes to the palace, and, and David starts planning with the drinks and more and more, and eventually Uriah gets smashed. And David's like, okay, finally now, Uriah in his drunken state, you know, he's going to lay down all that holier-than-thou kind of thing. He's going to go home, sleep with his wife, jobs are good in. Goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning, goes downstairs in the palace. And Uriah is down there sleeping again. He says, Uriah, what's happened? And he realizes his plan has failed. And even in Uriah's drunken state, he has more honor than David in his sober state. And again, we see the contrast between these two men. So David has to go even deeper and even darker. So he gets out a scroll and writes a note to the commander of the army, saying, I want you to take Uriah and a group of men and send them to where the fighting is fiercest on the front line. And then I want you, with the rest of the army, to retreat and leave them all to die. Writes it on the scroll, rolls it up. Who does he give to deliver that message? Uriah. He hands Uriah the death warrant for his own life. Uriah delivers it to the front line. The deed is done. He's put where the fighting's fiercest. All of a sudden, when it's at its worst, the army retreats, leaves him and all the other men to die. And then a message gets sent back to David, and they say, David, there's been a a disaster at the front line. A group of men were sent on a mission. It was a complete failure. Loads of slaughtered. And the worst of all, it includes one of your mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. And David doesn't even kind of continue the whole sort of let's play the game and pretend to mourn or kind of pretend that he's gutted about, you know, this guy who saved his life being killed. He says, send word to Joab, the commander. You know, these things happen. Don't worry yourself about it. It's war. These things happen. And David thinks... He's got away with all of it. It's brushed under the carpet and life will just go on. And then we read at the end of chapter 11, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So what does this story teach us? What do we learn from this? Well, I think it's a bit uncomfortable, a bit strange for us to read as a society because as a society, we have rejected the idea of sin. It's not something we really talk about, I feel comfortable discussing, is it? We've rejected the idea that there's a darkness capable of all kinds of wrong within each of us. And that includes us in church. We think, you know, we we read stories like David and say things like, I could never do something like that. 
Maybe when, when you heard that story, you thought, how on earth could someone do something like that? I just don't understand. And we might say, yeah, well, I, I, I get that. There's a few, uh, few bad people out there, but I'm a good person. Like, I, I could never end up doing something like that. See, the problem with this story, though, is it doesn't let us get off that lightly. Because David's resume of good deeds makes any of us look like bad people. When you read about David's life, he was this amazing person. The deeds he did for God, his squeaky clean record, make any of us look like bad people. And yet even David, the great king of Israel, was able to do despicable things. And maybe you say, well, yeah, no, there are a few wrongings out there. You know, a few bad apples, like that does happen. In, and yeah, you know, in other parts of the world, you know, that, that happens. You know, we have Syria and Rwanda. And, and in, in history, you know, people did these sorts of things. But now as a, a modern British culture, we're not like that. I mean, we, we don't act like that. We're not like David. And that's why we find the thought of the Holocaust so horrible. Now when we as a nation, our leaders start to find out that there could be countless people being systematically executed by Germans, we said there is no way that could happen. No way. I mean, they're just like us. They're just a stone's throw across the, the sea. They're educated, they're wealthy, they're intellectual. You know, they're like us. There's no way this could be happening. And that's why it's so uncomfortable to think about because what David teaches us, what the Holocaust teaches us, is that the seeds of evil are inside you and inside me. The seeds of the worst possible things. Now, yeah, right now, they might just be seeds. Jealousy. Deceit. Self-pity, resentment, that little porn habit you have, or that little tendency you have to tell white lies to get out of difficult situations. Just now they're seeds, but given the right soil and circumstances, small seeds can grow into mighty oak trees. And so if your response this morning after seeing the story of David is to say, I could never do that. Then you are in a vulnerable and unguided position just like David was and you're one step closer to doing the very thing that right now you'd say you despise. And the most important and healthiest step that we can take today is to be honest and humble and to admit that there's sin in our lives and to deal with it. Nice, upbeat start to today's sermon. <laughs> hey, so at the end of the day, let's be real. We all know that we do wrong. So how do we respond when we do wrong? The reason I've started heavy is because I think we can have a pride and a naivety to think, nah, this isn't about me. This is about each one of us. So how do we respond when we do wrong? Well, the next section shows us the road to repentance. And the first step on the road to repentance is to actually see your sin. You can't deal with your sin unless you can see it. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, we see the prophet Nathan coming to David. 
And Nathan, as we're going to see in a second, is going to confront and challenge David on his sin, what he's done. And it's worth pausing there for a second, because it poses a question to us. Who is your Nathan? Who is your Nathan? See, the only thing worse than having blind spots, and we all have our own blind spots, the only thing worse than having blind spots is having no one to point out your blind spots. Who's the person who's challenging you, confronting you on the sin in your life? Ten years ago, myself uh, and my friend Joel, who I'm very fortunate to have here visiting this morning down from Nottingham, we made an agreement that we were going to meet regularly to speak to one another, to call out sin in one another's lives, to point each other to the grace of God, and to just confess how life was going to one another. It's one of the best decisions that I ever made. I also meet every fortnight with Joe Simu. We go down to Cafe Nero around the corner. We talk life. We challenge one another. Because for both of us, we're aware that we are capable of the very things that David and the people we've read about in this whole Scandal of Grace series are capable of doing. And we need others to help us on that journey. We can't do the Christian life alone. We need community. Get in a community. Find the Nathan. If you say this morning, oh, I don't think I've got one, make it a priority this week. If you're married, your spouse is a great first person to start with. But get someone else on top. Someone that you can talk about your marriage with, that can share about the struggles you're going through, who can challenge you on your attitudes towards your spouse. Find a Nathan. So Nathan comes to David. And uh, it's a bit of a funny kind of way about doing things, but I think it says a lot about the way in which we should confront one another. And rather than just kind of rush in and say, you have done this terrible thing, he starts off with a story about men and sheep. I mean, I don't know if he has some Welsh heritage going on here or what, but he starts off with a story of two men and their sheep. And there's one rich man who had tons of sheep. He's absolutely loaded. He's got tons and tons and tons of sheep. And then there's a second man, a poor man. Now David thinks this story's true and he's been asked to judge about it. So I don't think, why is he, he getting so involved in this parable? He thinks this has actually happened. So he hears of the second man, a poor man. And the Bible lays it on thick as he talks about, Nathan lays it on thick as he talks about how this poor man felt with his sheep. In verse, chapter 12 it says, verse 12, and he brought it up, this sheep, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. This guy loves his sheep. It's all he's got. And then one day, a guy comes to visit the rich man. And he's thinking, all right, I've probably got to cook something. He loves lamb. Let's make him some lamb. I don't really want to use any of my sheep. I know. I'll go and steal the sheep from the poor man. So he goes to the poor man, rips away the sheep, slaughters it and serves it to his guest. And as David hears this story, he is furious. He's absolutely livid. He says, this man deserves to die. Have you ever noticed sometimes how we people can be so angry about the very sins that we're guilty of ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? Just as an aside, I found it fascinating these last few weeks, seeing countless people involved in a movie industry that have profited off of 
making content which objectifies and sexualizes women, calling out a man who took actions out of objectifying and sexualizing women. Completely wrong. And some of the loudest voices speaking out against him make billions off of an industry that does the very same thing. So David says, this man deserves to die. And you know where this is going. It maybe was the, the biggest sort of mic drop moment in the whole Bible. The prophet Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the man who you say deserves to die. And far worse. How do you think you'd feel in that moment? What would be going through your head? David's court. How did he respond? I mean, he's the king of Israel. He is the most powerful man in, in all the nation. And he's got everything to lose if this scandal comes out. What would you do in that moment? This is the defining moment of David's life. And these are the types of moments that define our lives. So how does he respond when he's challenged on sin? Well, there's four ways that we commonly respond to sin when we're challenged. Deny, downplay, defend, and deflect. See if you recognize any of these in your own life. Deny. When he's challenged on sin, did he say, no, wasn't me? Um, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, it sounds terrible, but yeah, no, I, I, haven't, got, I haven't, had, haven't had anything to do with that. No. Downplay. Oh, come on, Nathan. It's not that bad. I mean, have, have you heard what other kings are doing these days? And, you know, it's, it's come on. I mean, what can you expect? I mean, nobody's perfect. Boys will be boys. It's locker room behavior. What about defend? Nathan, if you only knew about the year I'd had, if you, if you only knew about my childhood, if you knew what happened to me, you probably wouldn't be speaking to me like this. Or deflect. Um, Nathan, I don't know if you've checked recently, but it, it, it takes two to tango. It's not, you know, I'm not the only one involved in this situation. And to be honest, last time I checked, you weren't so perfect yourself. Recognize any of those in your own life? So what did David do? Did he deny, downplay, deflect or defend? No, he repented. In verse 13, we read that he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, which David wrote at this time, it reveals more in depth about how he was thinking and feeling at this moment. And the first half of this the psalm is spent just saying to God, I have done wrong. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, Psalm 51, 3 to 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This isn't some kid just quickly saying sorry to his mum so that he can get off and go play again. This isn't an adult making a forced apology to keep his reputation intact. This is the heartfelt cry of someone who knows 
that they have really messed up and they've taken complete ownership of what they've done. They're not looking to deflect or defend or downplay or any of those things. They're looking to take complete ownership. And no, they haven't just sinned against man, but sinned against God. So how does God respond? Nathan, in verse 13, said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. If you want scandal, that scandal. David, let's not forget, committed adultery. He deceived. He murdered. And it wasn't like he then freely went forward with a confession. He had to have someone come to confront him to uncover it. Surely that's not right for God to just let him off the eternal consequences of his actions. Surely not. Does God not care about sin? No. God does care about sin and about justice far more than any one person in this room. And justice was done. But not then, but during a similar confrontation between two men, but in a very different circumstance. This time it was a Roman official facing up against a bloodied and battered man from Nazareth, accused of blasphemy and conspiring revolution. And in that moment when Pontius Pilate faced Jesus, there was no rescue, there was no pardon. Jesus, who never did anything wrong, completely free of any accusation, any sin, he paid the death penalty. In that moment, he took the punishment for David's adultery and David's murder and David's deceit and my pride and my lust and my anger and your jealousy and your greed and your addiction and every anger and act of malice and manipulation Jesus dealt with on the cross. He said, it is finished. It's complete. It's done. When we receive the gift of grace through faith by repentance, we no longer have to worry, am I good enough? Will I make it into heaven? You no longer have to impress the people in this church or the people at your workplace trying to keep up some sham that your life is all sorted and you've got it all together. Jesus has wiped your record clean. In Colossians chapter 2 it says, And you, that's me and you who were dead in our trespasses. You don't get any worse than that. Dead in your trespasses, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, past, present, and future. How? By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. I love this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God isn't looking for your perfection. There's already been a perfect one. He's looking for your heart. Do you know how freeing that news is? See, for me, I, I used to think I was a pretty good person. 
Like when I was growing up, I was kind of, you know, all the teachers loved me. I never did all the naughty stuff. I don't have some testimony of going off the rails. And, you know, the naughtiest thing I did was I got caught having chewing gum in year nine and got a 15-minute detention, which I cried about. I mean, that's, that, that's, how, that's how deep my story goes. I mean, it's, it's dark, dark days. I literally had people coming up to me at youth group in church saying, when I'm your age, I want to be like you. I went to my youth pastor and said, we need to have more small groups for the, I I said, the better Christians like me. I was a good person, in my head anyway. And I, I, I struggled with this idea of grace. I thought, yeah, grace is cool, but if you could earn your way into heaven, not that I'd ever said this, I'd probably do a pretty job of, good job of getting in, or so I thought. And then in God's kindness, he opened my eyes to just how deep and dark and destructive the sin was in my own life. Good old Christian church boy. And it was the hardest and the most humbling and the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. Because in that moment... I realized just how needed and how wonderful the grace of God is. Have you had one of those moments? See, in that moment, I realized that it wasn't about me being some super Christian or trying to impress my parents or impress the church or impress my people at work. It wasn't about me just trying to project some perfection to people because they'd already been a perfect one. I I didn't have to run from God when I messed up. I could run to him. You know that feeling when you messed up, maybe on a Saturday night and you wake up Sunday morning and you think, I just can't be in church today. When you get the grace of God, church is the first place you want to be. Some of the best times of worship I've ever had were stood in church, fully aware of what had happened the night before, having repented before God and say, how wonderful is your grace, God? When you get how messed up you are, you get how good the grace of God is. It's the best thing that can ever happen in your life. God's not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your heart. Our response is to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there's an invitation, a question posed to us today. Does God have your heart? Does God have your heart? It only happens when you come to a deep awareness of the power of your sin, but the greater power of God's grace. That your guilty is charged, but Jesus has scandalously wiped your record clean. As John Newton, the, the slave uh, trader, converted to him right at once wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How could he write that? How can you know amazing grace? By seeing that you are once blind and lost and dead. But now you've been given sight. And life, and Jesus has poured out his unending, amazing grace. When you get that, it changes everything. 
Are you striving to impress God and impress people here or impress your colleagues, trying to project this whole thing of perfection? Or maybe for you, you think, if you knew what I'd done, I'm not sure you'd be so convinced about God giving me forgiveness and grace. Or the story of David and the story of the gospel, as Tim Keller puts it, is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The invitation is to give yourself, give your heart completely to Jesus this morning. Let go of that shame, let go of that pride, and accept the free gift of grace.